Very good. Would you pray with me, please? Sovereign Lord God, our Heavenly Father, ruler of heaven and earth, we thank you and worship you for making us, for redeeming us, and calling us, creating, redeeming us to be part of your plan, your story, now and for eternity. And we thank you for making us a part of this magnificent story from creation to new creation. We pray for all of those who are had medical procedures this week, who are home ill or recovering. We pray for those who are traveling this weekend. We pray for our brothers and sisters, particularly around the world, those who are suffering distress and hard times and persecution. In particular, we pray for them, Father God. Please hear our prayers and honor our prayers on their behalf. Bless them, help them, protect them from their enemies, protect them from suffering and hardship as you see fit. Reveal yourself to them in a very special, unique, and powerful way as you choose to do when you work in the lives of of your people and your true church in times such as this, the world over. We pray for the church in America. We pray for the church all over the entire world. Purge your church. Purify your church. And help your true church to stand up and be a bright and shining light to fight for what is right and to faithfully proclaim and teach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And help us in our small, humble way as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus according to John. And we thank you for those thousands from the world over who have been watching and listening. And we pray that the truth of your word will be faithfully and clearly proclaimed to them. And your Holy Spirit will open their spiritual eyes and ears, open their souls to receive the truth of your word, to receive the new birth, and for believers to be strengthened in their faith and their resolve and their cause for your kingdom. Please hear our prayers, Lord. Please forgive us of our daily sins and faults and failures. Purify your people to be true image bearers of you, our Redeemer God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so may the meditations of all of our hearts, may the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O Lord, our God, our one and only hope, our rock and our Redeemer. In the name of he who is the Word made flesh, we pray. Amen. Would you stand pleased to honor the reading of the Word of the Lord? The Gospel according to our elder brother, the Apostle John. We finally arrive at the fateful chapter 3. Not that all of the chapters in the Gospel of John are not absolutely magnificent and fateful, but of course through the centuries, and probably rightfully so, chapter 3 has received a great deal of recognition. John chapter 3, verses 1 to 2. Now there was a man of the Pharisees, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him, that is Jesus, by night, and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God for them. Thank you, folks. You may be seated. So now we arrive at one of the Bibles, one of the New Testaments, one of the Gospel of John's most famous, most well-known, and most oft-written-about, and most oft-quoted passages. This conversation of Jesus with this man of the religious establishment, the religious elite of the Jewish people, this man Nicodemus. This story ends well. Nicodemus will become, arguably, one of the first Christian believers. This story does end well. This is why this chapter is so important. This is a man who receives salvation 
from the true Messiah. In time, he will become a recipient of the new birth that Jesus will teach him about and lead him to. And so he is an example for all of us for posterity to come to salvation and he who is the word made flesh. This passage, as I mentioned before, has had, pardon the expression, a great deal of ink spilled over it the past 2,000 years by many theologians, and justifiably so. It has been spoken of more, quoted more than almost any other passage in the Bible, certainly in the Gospels, in the New Testament. A great deal is a wonderful commentary, and research has been written about it, and some not so wonderful. That's one of the reasons why I want to go through chapter 3. Well, I want to go through every verse of this gospel very, very carefully, methodically, systematically, and painstakingly. So we are certain to absorb, pray God, appropriate, and teach and proclaim the truth and nothing but the truth and the whole truth of this passage. Um, Needless to say, almost needless to say, Many of you in this room have heard about this conversation, have read this conversation, have heard about this conversation a good portion of your life, or most of your life. It is arguably one of the most important private conversations ever held or ever recorded. How do we know about a private conversation? Well, that's fairly easy. Nicodemus told John about it. Jesus told John about it. And John himself may not have been very far away as this private conversation was taking place some short distance off, perhaps. But there are other conversations in this gospel that can match this description as well. And we will give them the honor that they're due when we arrive at those passages. This conversation, again, and others, contains probably what are life's most important spiritual realities with which the Word made flesh will confront humanity, with which God will confront us by way of His Son, by way of His Word, by way of John's inspired gospel. If you care to notice... This will extend into the next few chapters. Well, uh, these important conversations that Jesus will have with people who represent fallen humanity in some way or another, it will go all the way through the gospel. This first conversation with Nicodemus is, is with a man who is very high in the religious and civil life of the Jewish people. Under the Roman Imperium, he is an acknowledged leader of the Jewish people. Jesus is having this conversation with this leader of the Jewish people near the beginning of his ministry. Near the end of his ministry, near the completion of his mission in his first advent, he will speak to who? He will speak to, from a human point of view, the most powerful authoritarian figure in Roman Palestine, Pontius Pilate, the prefect, the representative of the Roman emperor himself. And from that conversation to that conversation, from Nicodemus to Pilate, we will speak to numerous persons from almost every walk of life and varied stratas of the society and the culture. Now, when Jesus enters into a number of these very important encounters, these conversations, with a number of persons from varied backgrounds, please understand this. You'll notice that Jesus right away cuts to the heart of the matter. Or he cuts to the chase, if you'll pardon the slang expression. Many of these people will sort of try to wriggle around and maneuver around the heart of the issue, uh, the heart of the matter concerning themselves and this man that they're speaking to, and Jesus will not let them do so. It's interesting. Sometimes he dispenses with polite formalities and he cuts straight to the heart of the matter. 
In fact, he will cut straight to the heart, you could arguably say, of each person in these conversations, as he will do so with us. If we care to enter into an authentic dialogue with he who is the Word made flesh. Now these people, they are very real persons. This is history. Very well documented, recorded history. Actual persons, actual conversations. Nevertheless, they are representatives. You need to remember that too. They represent all of us in a way, to one degree or another, in that they represent fallen humanity. And the first person here, Nicodemus. We meet in chapter 3. Then a Samaritan woman, chapter 4, verses 1 to 26. Then a Gentile public official of some sort, chapter 4, verses 43 to 53. A man that Jesus encounters at the pool of Bethesda, chapter 5, verses 1 to 15. And of course, there will be others. Now also take note that here in chapter 3, we move from a very public setting. We move from a very public encounter, very public encounters with temple authorities and with large crowds of people at or near the temple complex to a very small, very quiet, very private one-on-one -on -one encounter or conversation with a representative from the temple authorities and at night. And though he is a member of the religious elite, John implies he's just another unbelieving member of the crowds that are seeing and hearing Jesus but are not quite perceiving or really understand truly who he is, what he's doing, what he's saying. Never has any private conversation been so important and again so spoken of for so many others and by so many others. And I will say the stakes can't be higher. The stakes absolutely cannot be any higher concerning the subject matter of this talk, of this conversation. Jesus, the Word made flesh, who according to John in chapter 2, He knows what is in all men. He knows what is in all people. He is the divine Son of God who has the attribute of divine omniscience. He really does know comprehensively what is in here and what is in here of all human beings. And keeping that in mind, he speaks to a man who is one of the so-called religious authorities, the so-called religious elites who confronted him that day when he purged and purified the temple. One of those persons who is partly responsible for the corruption that Jesus found in the temple. A man who nevertheless, in spite of his position, he is in spiritual darkness along with everybody else. Inadequate, spurious, disingenuous belief right along with all the rest of the crowds. Jesus who is the true light. Jesus who is the true teacher. Jesus who is the source and embodiment of all truth. Jesus who is God's truth incarnate. He is going to have to correct this man. He is going to have to open this man's eyes and this man's heart. He is going to have to guide this man to the truth and in all truth. He is going to have to guide this man of broken religion, as one commentator says, this man of the religious elite, to truly grasp the significance of the true person and true work of the true Messiah and the true God, the true God of the Scriptures that this man should know. Not a God and a religion and a Messiah of his own creation and the own creation of his brothers, his fellows of the religious establishment. He must reveal to Nicodemus how a person acquires real life. That is, life that human beings were always meant to have at the hands of the Creator God. Life in which you really know God, in right relationship with God, so you can be right with yourself, presumably right with other human beings, and with God's creation around you. Real life as it was always meant to be. 
He will have to guide Nicodemus in informing how a person can truly know this one true living God and be right with him. Jesus is God himself, of course, according to the prologue. Never forget the prologue. Jesus himself, the word made flesh. He, his person, his work. He is that one true way to God. The one true way to know God. The one true way to real life. A new life, a transformed life, a new birth, a new existence all the way about that Jesus will teach us is absolutely necessary. He will teach us in this conversation, in this chapter. Jesus, the ultimate revealing of God to humanity. He is that new life. He brings that. All that means, all it brings. Now concerning Nicodemus, Nicodemus is going to find out that his religiosity is worthless and this is going to shatter him. Because this is a man of the sect or religious party of the Pharisees. There are three principal religious sects or parties in Judaism at this time. The Essenes, which were the extreme separatists, and they're living literally out in the desert, in the caves, separating themselves from everybody, even fellow Jews. These are the people, they're wonderful people really, and they will give us the Dead Sea Scrolls. The other religious party is thoroughly corrupt. They're what we would call the apostates, the secularists, the materialists. They are the Sadducees, and sadly, they have a monopoly on the priesthood class in running the temple. And mainly the Jewish people consider them traitors and collaborators with the Roman overlords. They are beginning to reject the truth of the Word of God and the supernatural, and they are beginning to adopt Hellenism in ways that is harmful, and they are very cozy with the Roman rule. The Pharisees, I'll tell you more about them in a few minutes. They are, next to the Essenes, the most strict or what appears to be the most strict and the most pious observant Jews of their time. But we will find out they have gone terribly, terribly wrong as well in another direction. But Nicodemus, a man of the Pharisees, this man literally believes that you can work your way into heaven. He literally believes that you can earn the good graces of God, that by living a good life, keeping all of these nitpicking, hair-splitting rules and regulations that they made up, by the way, and piled on the scriptural law of God, he believes he can earn his way into heaven. He believes that by living a life this way, he can have the keys of God's kingdom in his back pocket, the back pocket of his robe, and Jesus will shatter this. He will say, that will not do. It is impossible. Nothing of the kind. And this man's whole life is steeped in this erroneous spiritual mindset and spiritual pursuit. Religiosity is not the way. Culture is not the way. Family and personal pedigree, of which Nicodemus is outstanding according to the Jewish nation, but that won't do either. In the end, that's worthless as well. It's not the way. Good deeds, good works, it is not the way. Here is the way, Jesus. The Word made flesh. He and He alone is the way. He is the only way. Yes, He is the only exclusive way to see God, the one true living God, and to encounter Him and enjoy Him and experience Him forever. He is the source. He is the giver of this absolutely necessary rebirth, a second birth to new spiritual life. In the end, folks, it's the only life truly to be had. One has to be, as Jesus has said, born again. And oh, how that phrase has been bandied about for 2,000 years. And sadly, in these times, I hear it used by people who one way or another have absolutely no idea what it really means, what it really is. Born again, by the way, from above. Anotain. We'll pick apart that word when we get to it. 
born again from above. You see, uh, let me use this phrase, and I don't mean to be cute, made over. This is a comprehensive, radical, complete, and total transformation makeover. Made over from the core of your being, your soul, your spirit, from the inside out. All over again by God's power, not by human power or ability. All made possible by the incarnate word's work. Interesting, this man Nicodemus, religious elite, religious leader, civic ruler, he exemplifies these people in Jerusalem who see Jesus in some sense, give him some sort of lip service, or they, they acknowledge that he's maybe a prophet. He, he's doing tremendous things. He's really rattling everybody, including the religious establishment. But their faith is it's faulty. It's inadequate. As John described last week, it perhaps it's just downright disingenuous. Maybe most of these people are just curiosity seekers, titillated by sensationalism in some way without really caring to understand who this man really is, what he really is doing, and trying to understand what he really is saying. And notice Nicodemus approaches Jesus by referring to the signs. He is one of the crowd that's drawn by the signs. He's drawn by the miracles. He's drawn by these apparent demonstrations of transcendent power and authority. He's drawn to these, if I may use the word, sensational things that Jesus does. These extraordinary things that He genuinely is doing, is accomplishing. But I'll quote Edward Clink from his commentary. He writes, and he makes a wonderful point. Nicodemus embodies broken religion and broken humanity. He does. And this broken man of broken religiosity and broken humanity... He is finally about to meet the truth face to face. The truth from the Creator, the truth from the Redeemer God in the flesh. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Remember from last week? We should read the last verse of chapter 2 along with the first verse of chapter 3. This is the way it was originally meant to be read. And because he, that is Jesus, did not need anyone to bear witness concerning mankind, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. That's how it's supposed to be read. He's saying this man is a prime example of the crowd. See Jesus, hear Jesus, do not perceive, do not understand. He is a member of fallen humanity, of inadequate belief in God, and in who this Jesus is. And we have a frightening and sobering irony here. This man is a Pharisee, one of the most pious or devout from a human point of view of the Jewish people. Ruler of the Jews. Member of the religious elite and establishment. And he is inadequate in his faith. He is still in spiritual darkness. Well, if that's what that means, then all the rest of us, soiled, fallen humanity, we are in very serious trouble. This is a man of the Old Covenant. He's a professional teacher of the Bible. He's supposed to be a professional interpreter of the Bible, one of the best, one of the most learned. He's supposed to know the Scriptures like the back of his hand, as we say. He's a member of the chosen Old Covenant people of God. And he's in spiritual darkness? The plight of humanity seems hopeless. Yes, it is. The plight of humanity is absolutely hopeless. As far as humanity is concerned. Humanity trying to fix humanity. Humanity trying to work or earn humanity's way out of humanity's mess that humanity made. Humanity's not the hope. 
Jesus is the hope. The one and only hope. The one true God, Father, Son, and Spirit. He is the hope. The one and only hope. And Nicodemus is about to meet the ultimate hope. The good news is the ultimate hope has arrived. The Word has become flesh according to a divine plan. And He is now dwelling among us. Take heart, fallen humanity. The ultimate hope and rescuer has revived. And this man of broken religiosity is going to come to the light and encounter his and everyone else's one true and final hope. Now the name Nicodemus is fairly common in Greek. It's a Greek name, but it's not very common amongst the Jews. I found this very interesting in researching this man this week. Uh, some Bible scholars maintain that several centuries uh, before the birth of Christ, and even some a century or two after the first advent, the life of Jesus on earth, they can only find about four or five men of the Jewish people by the name of Nicodemus. So this name was, and most of them by, uh, from a family by the name of Gurion. And it is believed that back in the era between the Old Testament and the New Testament, in the age of the Maccabees and the Hasmoneans, when the Jews were fighting against the Seleucid Greeks and others to maintain their freedom, their independence, it is believed that there was a particular Jewish military hero. And he was given the Greek nickname Nicodemus. The name Nicodemus, or nickname Nicodemus, means victor over the people, or conqueror of the people. That's interesting enough in itself. And it may have been given to this man as a nickname. And so males in his family line down through the years were given this name as a badge of rank or a badge of honor. Nicodemus, this Nicodemus, may very well have been from that family, which means he came from a very old, wealthy, established, landed gentry family with a heroic heritage. So this man probably does have very much a very lofty family pedigree and heritage, according to the Jewish culture, the Jewish nation. It's interesting that I've told you before, the Romans came in about 63, 53 BC. Well, this is about 27 to 29 AD. So by this time, Greco-Roman culture had had a tremendous influence on the Jewish people, materially, spiritually, about every way you can think of. Some of it's neutral, some of it good with material culture and advances, and some of it, of course, with religion or spirituality or faith in the one true God was bad, very, very bad. Influences of paganism upon the Jewish people. And as I've told you before, you'll find many Jewish people who were influenced by Hellenism and who took on Greek names. Nicodemus is one of them. And when we come to the Sadducees, in many ways, they have sold out to Greco-Roman culture. So Nicodemus is believed to be from a very wealthy, well-connected family. He's the cream of the crop of their culture and society. You have to understand this. He is on, John calls him a ruler of the Jews, which means this. He is almost certainly a member of the Sanhedrin, the 71 member of the Jewish Supreme Court, you could call it, or the Jewish High Council. They were the rulers of the Jewish people, but their power and influence was limited because, of course, they had to answer to the Roman Imperium, to the Roman governor, their Roman overlords. Nevertheless, they had a great deal of influence on the Jewish people. Nicodemus is a member of that 71-member council or court. And that 71-member council or court is mostly made up of Sadducees and or Pharisees. Most of the members of the court come from either of those two religious sects or parties. So he's a member of the religious ruling class, a temple authority, member 
of the religious sect and party known as the Pharisees. Now let me give you a few things about the Pharisees. hope I'm not being too tedious. But I really think you really need to understand this man. Who he is, what he is, what he believes, what makes him tick. Where he's coming from. And why he's going to Jesus. This is going to help you understand this conversation. And why Jesus speaks to this man the way he does. The information that he gives him. And the way that he deals with him. Okay, Nicodemus and the Pharisees. With the Pharisees, uh, some historians argue exactly when they were established. If you remember your Old Testament history, the Jewish people were, were able to return from exile from Babylon. And when they returned from exile in Babylon to, to Palestine, to Old Canaan, to the land of Israel, some people believe that that's when the forerunners of the Pharisees were established. A particular strict party of Jewish people who wanted to adhere to the Old Testament Scriptures, who wanted to be faithful to God, and who wanted to be rid of every single solitary influence of Gentile paganism that they possibly could. Others believe that probably during the times of the Maccabean Wars, the Jewish Wars of Independence against the Greeks, that the Pharisees were founded. And the Pharisees in the beginning were right as rain. They were marvelous. They were devout, pious people who loved God and wanted to honor God and obey the Mosaic Law and honor the Old Covenant. But in time, they went wrong. And here's how they went wrong in a nutshell. They turned true piety and devotion to God into externalized religion. And as we all may very well know, externalized religion becomes dead religion. They built what they called a hedge around the law. They were so obsessive about people obeying the law of God that they built their own law around the law of God. So if you obey our law, then you will most certainly be keeping God's law. But in time, their law became more important than God's law that they were supposed to be honoring and protecting. And they came up with, you will not believe the hair-splitting, nitpicking rules and regulations that these people came up with to obey God, to honor God, to keep oneself pure. In time, they not only separated from the Gentiles, they began to separate from the Jewish people. They called them Amharats, those dirty, unwashed masses, those common people of the land that don't keep the law like we do. Remember how many times in the four Gospels Jesus den uh, denounces them for their hypocrisy, for their holier-than-thou attitude? Let me give you a few examples of how ridiculous their laws were. Well, you'll think it's ridiculous. Remember, they were, they were obsessed about keeping the Sabbath day. Keep the Sabbath day for it is holy. Don't break Sabbath laws. And you weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath day. With some, there were three basic schools of the Pharisees taught by Hillel, Shammai, and Gamaliel. Gamaliel appears in the New Testament. By the way, Gamaliel is the Apostle Paul's master teacher before his conversion. Now, some Pharisees said a woman should not look into a mirror on the Sabbath day because if she looks into a mirror and sees a gray hair, she'll be tempted to pluck it out, and that's working. Another rule is it's all right to swallow vinegar on the Sabbath day for a sore throat. But don't you dare gargle with vinegar. That's working. Another rule and regulation is, it's all right for you to eat an egg laid by a hen on the Sabbath day as long as you intend to kill the hen that laid the egg. I'm giving you history. This is fact. 
This is the hyper-legalistic religiosity of these people. This is where this man is coming from. And he thinks he's going to earn his way into the kingdom of God by being this. And he has largely departed the original sacred scriptures, the word of God, almost altogether in some ways. It is a horrible tragedy. It's a horrible tragedy. And dare I say, you will find folks who call themselves religious and friends of God and devout and pious in 2021 in America, and they're the same thing. Thinking they can work their way into the kingdom of God. When Jesus says, absolutely not, no way. Nothing doing. That's why I'm here. I'm the way, the only way and your only hope to enter the kingdom of God. So, this is interesting. Nicodemus is an elder, which means at that time he literally was an elder. He was an older man. The elders are the most influential ruling people of the Jews. He must have been at least a man in his 40s or a man about my age in his middle 50s or perhaps even a little older. And it's interesting that he is seeking out an audience with a man who's probably about half his age, the age of 30. And here's the irony here. He's speaking to a younger man from the human point of view, but a man who is God, a man who is eternal, a man who is ageless, who in his deity had no beginning and no end, the one and true eternal being, absolutely ageless, this elder is coming to have a conversation with. And yet, the ageless, eternal God, God the Son, took upon Himself a human body and a human nature, according to the prologue. And so from the human point of view, Nicodemus is speaking to a man who appears to be only about 30 years of age. That's ironic. That's unusual for an elder, a distinguished elder, to be seeking an audience, a conversation, a meeting with a much younger man and a rural Galilean at that. A man of the soil, one of the unwashed masses, a rabbi from Galilee, and a rabbi who, according to the religious elite of the time, would have very shaky credentials, according to them. <coughs> this conversation is probably taking place while Jesus is still in Jerusalem, during or near the conclusion of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Right? We're in that week, after Passover still. <coughs> Where? Where is this taking place? <clears throat> Pardon me. You've seen many pictures. You've seen many films, which have taken a guess at where and how exactly this meeting is taking place. But the fact of the matter is, we don't really know. Pardon me. Allergy season. Pardon me. <laughs> Forgive me. Sorry. <clears throat> Where, where exactly is this meeting taking place? Well, the Apostle John doesn't tell us exactly. It would be interesting to know. One day we'll find out. But it had to have been somewhere with at least some chance of privacy. And by the way, folks, privacy would be very difficult at this time. This is the height of the feast. There are thousands and thousands of people that are still in Jerusalem, just all crammed in, jammed in all over each other 24-7 until the festival is over. This couldn't have been at a home. Maybe Jesus has been invited to stay with somebody in their home. It could be in a public place of lodging. He could have been paying to stay somewhere. Thousands of people did. I will even suggest that it may have been in an open campsite. 
because thousands of people were camping all over the city and outside of the city. So you might want to imagine that possibly they're sitting around a campfire under the open stars having this conversation. It was held wherever Jesus happened to be staying at the time, wherever Nicodemus could track him down and have a conversation in relative peace and quiet. Chapter 2, Now this man Nicodemus came to him, Jesus by night, and said to him, this is extraordinary. And Nicodemus has been accused of having mixed emotions or mis, uh, mixed motives or perhaps insincere motives. Well, I think he has mixed emotions. I think there's a lot going on in this man's mind, in this man's heart. But I think we need to credit him with a little more sincerity than what people give him at times. And he makes an extraordinary statement here as the leader of the religious elite to open this conversation. But he's saying several things here. Rabbi, we know that you, we, not I, we, we know you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So this man Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Now much has been made of that. It's a very interesting statement by John, isn't it? Why does he mention this? Is it just purely historical detail? Why does this man come to Jesus at night? Well, the, we really don't know. John didn't give us that detail either. But there are some theories as to why Nicodemus came by night. One is, and I don't know if you know this, but you may be interested to know that rabbis and scribes, religious teachers of the day, they were very well known. They had a reputation for talking and debating such issues in the night hours, long into the night, so they could be left alone to do so. That's one reason. Number two, they probably couldn't meet in quiet and private uh, during the day. It was better to do so at night. That makes sense. Three, Jesus was probably far too busy with the crowds during the day. That's a distinct possibility. And another, I'm sure you've all heard this one, and I'm a little shaky with this one. It's possible. Nicodemus wanted the cover of night because he didn't want others of his class, the religious elite, knowing of his visit to Jesus. Now, all of these are possible, or a combination of all is possible. However, I don't know if he was going in secret. Because he does, remember when he, he says to Jesus, we know, we have come to this conclusion, not I, we. So he's speaking in behalf of others, others of his class. They may have sent Nicodemus to Jesus. They may full well know that Nicodemus is going to go speak to Jesus. Remember, Jesus will later call him, you are considered the teacher of Israel, and you don't know these things? I think it was a distinct possibility that his brother Pharisees or some of the religious elites said, Nicodemus, you're the one, go get him. You're the one that can see what he's all about. You're the one that can put him in his place. Let's try to do this without trouble. Go find this rabbi from Galilee. Get him. Put him in his place. You challenge him. You debate him. You find out what's really going on here. That's possible. So we must also, there's something here that's more important. There's something here that's more important. There's more to this phrase, he came to Jesus by night. There's something more important there that John means. There's another meaning. Even though this meaning did take place literally at night, you have to consider this. Don't forget this as we work our way through the gospel. You must always consider the Apostle John's inspired use of light and darkness of day and night in this gospel. He is under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. And he is inspired to use day and night, light and darkness, in this gospel to tell you something. Every time John uses the word night, 
in this gospel. It is used to not only describe the time of day, it is used to describe moral or spiritual darkness. It's used as a moral or spiritual symbolism, you see. As D.A. Carson writes in his commentary, Nicodemus really approached Jesus by night, but his own spiritual night was darker than what he knew or realized. That's the point that John is really making. And Nicodemus said to him, Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a didaskalos, a scribe, a teacher, a religious authority. Or you can translate it as, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. So let's take this at face value. It's an incredible thing to say. By saying this, Nicodemus is admitting Jesus to be a religious authority of the highest or most respected degree. Very interesting. Let's give him the benefit of a doubt that he is at least somewhat sincere about this and has come to this conclusion. If he is sincere about it, you realize what's happening? The Spirit of God is starting to open this man's eyes and draw him to the words and the work of the Son of God. This man is being drawn in. As you and I, pray God, are and have been drawn in. Notice Nicodemus says, we, we know. He's not only speaking for himself, but on behalf of at least a few others. So Nicodemus and at least a few others of the religious establishment have come to this con uh, conclusion concerning Jesus. And one of the reasons why Nicodemus goes to Jesus is because of what Jesus did in the temple. Nicodemus was probably there. He probably was dodging the coins and the sheep and the oxen. He probably saw and heard the whole thing. And he's been watching Jesus for the whole following week, listening to his teaching, watching his signs, watching this man by a word or a touch heal people on the point of death, healing terribly deformed and crippled people. And it's real. It's not cheap parlor tricks. He's actually doing and accomplishing these things by a power greater than our own, by the power of God. Sounds good at face value, yes? He says Jesus is a teacher sent from God. You better believe He is. He's right on that. Jesus is the greatest teacher sent from God. He is God who is the greatest teacher. He is God the Son sent by the Father, the ultimate teacher and revealer of God's truth. And one must understand this, though, according to the culture of the day, there's something else Nicodemus might be saying. He's maneuvering here. He's maneuvering here. Nicodemus is using what we call honorific language or an honorific greeting. He's honoring. He's complimenting richly Jesus as he greets him. It's something of a maneuver. It's something of a challenge. Let me explain this to you. An honorific greeting was often used in the first century A.D. to open a debate or to throw down a challenge amongst the religious teachers of the day. It is meant to compliment. It may be sincere, yes. But this opening address could contain some sort of self-promotion for the one who uttered the statement. Somebody trying to take the high ground or launch the first shot in the debate. Nicodemus is offering, even by way of this compliment, a formal challenge to Jesus to a debate. You have to understand that. He's come to debate. He's come to challenge Jesus, even though he's curious about Jesus and impressed with Jesus. He wants to get to the bottom of who this Jesus is, what he says, and what he does. However, I think Nicodemus is sincere, at least to a degree, about what he sees Jesus doing. 
He hasn't really come to full faith and belief. He's one of the crowds of darkened spirituality. But he can't deny the signs. Remember, John is saying to you and I, watch for the signs, the events, the acts, the actions, the miracles of Jesus who point to who he truly is, reveals who he truly is, and what he truly came to do and to accomplish. Nicodemus is drawn to those signs. And he's on the right track. You have to credit him for that. Because what is he saying? Jesus is accomplishing these things by the undeniable power of God. At least, at least Nicodemus accurately acknowledges this. And he does address him with a respectful rabbi, which many wouldn't have addressed Jesus that way. They would have treated him with contempt. Many have proposed that Nicodemus is a sincere seeker, a sincere seeker, as we would say nowadays. He genuinely wants to know this Jesus, to know what he is all about, even though he wishes to do so by a challenge, by a debate. And yet he says this, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He admits Jesus is from God. Folks, that's a pretty intense thing to say. We have to compliment Nicodemus in this. And those he represents who share G uh, their, this opinion about Jesus at this point. He acknowledges that the power and presence of God is in this man, is upon this man, is somehow coming from this man, flowing from and out of this man. He's never seen anything like this before in his life. None of these people have. Jesus speaks and acts with true undeniable authority. True undeniable divine power, some way, somehow. God's hand is really seen in what he does and what he says. Nicodemus is honest enough and sincere enough to admit this, to come to this conclusion. Perhaps this Galilean rabbi is a true prophet after all. Perhaps he's a true prophet after all this time. We haven't had a true prophet speaking for God for centuries. Is history really changing? At last? For the better? Finally hope? Is he like the baptizer? You know, they said he had dealings with the baptizer. They may have even been related in some way. The baptizer baptized him. They knew one another. And they said the baptizer was the second Elijah. So who's he? Many are wondering, is he the one? Is he the son of David? Is he the Messiah? And folks, you have to understand, messianic expectations and, and fever, it was red hot at this time in the first century A.D. Oh, they wanted their Messiah. But they wanted a Messiah of their own making. Not the actual Messiah. There's the tragedy. There were messianic pretenders before Jesus. There will be messianic pretenders after Jesus, the actual Messiah. But this Jesus, here's the tragedy going into this conversation, how Jesus is going to set this man straight, set us all straight. Jesus, in this conversation with Nicodemus, he is still talking to the religious people who are all about man-made religion and working their way into heaven. This Jesus at this moment, according to Nicodemus, well, he's not the right kind of Messiah. He's not the religious establishment's idea of the right and proper Messiah. He's not politically and culturally and religiously correct. You see, they are all spiritually so far gone and corrupted by this time. 
They're supposed to know the Scriptures, and they're ignorant. The Messiah is there in the Old Testament. They should have known. They've invented a Messiah of their own making. We do the same thing. I challenge you to go to any number of churches all over this country, and they will be proclaiming and talking about a false Jesus, a false Christ, a false Messiah that doesn't exist, that is not the actual one true living God, God the Son, the God the Son of the Bible. The Messiah, the Word made flesh of John's Gospel. Nicodemus and the others are not expecting the prophesied Messiah of Scripture, the true Messiah of God, the Word made flesh. But here's the good news. Nicodemus is now meeting Him face to face in the flesh. He's now meeting the actual Messiah, the biblically promised anointed one of God, who is God, the true Messiah, who is in His humanity the true Son of David, but who in His deity is the true Son of God. Son of God in the loftiest way that you can use that expression, Son of God. And this Messiah, the real Messiah, a warning. He does not answer to the religious games of the religious establishment. He does not answer to their games 2,000 years ago, and He does not do so now. He doesn't answer to the religious games of the establishment nor does he play by their rules. He has never played by their rules. He will never play by their rules. If Nicodemus knew truly at the moment who he really was speaking to, he would not be issuing this polite challenge, polite as it may be. He would have been flat on his face on the ground. But in time, he will be. He will be. This story ends well. This man will be freed of his man-made religiosity. And he will receive the new birth, the new life that the true Messiah came to bring. Here's a closing point to these first two verses. And the Spirit of God hammered me with this every single day this week. Tell these people how gracious, how generous, and how condescending, the good condescending, is God to sinful humanity. And to quote-unquote religious people like Nicodemus, and to all of the other sinners in this gospel that Jesus will talk to in a gracious, generous, and condescending manner. And by condescending, I mean <clears throat> truly the great, kindly condescending to speak to dirty, little, filthy, self-worshipping human creatures like us with kindness and with love and with patience. How gracious and how generous and how condescending is Jesus, God the Son, the Word made flesh, King of kings, creator God, king of the universe, to this spiritually darkened man and his religious pomposity. It is astounding. We should never cease to be amazed at this. How patient is God, God the Son, with sinful human creatures? And how much more so than Nicodemus or any one of us deserves? Never lose the wonder of that. The wonder of the patient graciousness of Jesus, Son of God, as He dwells among us in the flesh, as the prologue declares. But, to Nicodemus, I'm going to leave you with something of a cliffhanger this week. Pardon the expression. To Nicodemus' credit... The Holy Spirit of God is leading him. We are saved in spite of ourselves, not because of ourselves. And yet human beings are accountable. So to give this man some credit, 
He wisely recognizes the undeniable power and authority and presence of God. Do you do that when you see the power and presence of God at work around you? In events, in the life of the church, here and abroad, in the life of brothers and sisters in Christ around you? Do you perceive that and respond to that? Acknowledge that wisely and well? He wisely and well acknowledges this power and authority and presence of God in Jesus. Another important point as we close. Jesus welcomes that. Jesus welcomes that. Jesus loves that. He welcomes that. He encourages that. He always does. And He always will. He always meets. He always speaks to. He always takes time for. He always welcomes those who are honestly, genuinely seeking Him. Seeking the truth about Him. Seeking the truth about Him, about God. As Jesus will say on another occasion, Seek and you will find. If you honestly, authentically seek. But if you honestly and authentically seek, you better be willing to be encountered by Him. Because He will confront you as He confronts all of these people. Nicodemus seeks. Nicodemus will find. You see, it seems Nicodemus is asking Jesus this, sincerely, I believe. Who are you? Who are you really? I've heard what they say about you. I've been listening to you. I've been watching you. What are you? What are you really about? I've seen what you have done. No human being can do these things. I've never seen anything like this before in my life. None of us have. We know you must have come from God. Have you? Are you more? These signs that you do points to something more? Are you a prophet, the prophet? Elijah come back from the dead, uh, the greater Moses? Are you? And he dare not ask this. Are you possibly the Messiah? The son of David. What and who is the true source and purpose of your religious authority? Truly God? Your teaching truly God? Your signs, your miracles truly by God that you do? It's a challenge. And yet, a question with sincerity? And the good news is Jesus will graciously and generously answer this man. But be warned, between this week and next, in answering, Jesus will cut to the core of this man's being. He will cut to the core of the matter for all sinful fallen human beings. He will cut to the heart of the matter concerning fallen sinful humanity. He will not play by the rules of the religious debate. He doesn't have to. He is the truth, the source of all truth, and He will give the truth. And His answer will absolutely stun Nicodemus. But it will change his life and his eternal destiny. Yes, forever. His answer has stunned the world for 2,000 years. His answer will shake the world 2,000 years ago. His answer has shaken the world for 2,000 years. And believe it or not, in spite of evil, wicked, sinful humanity in this country and the world over, his answer is still shaking the world over in 2021. And pray God by our flawed and humble efforts,
His answer will still stun and shake the world over. Even now. His answer will be one of the most profound truths that any human being has ever heard or ever will hear. I tell you with solemn, absolute, divine truth and authority that unless a person is born again from above, he cannot and will not see the kingdom of God. And to that new birth, you must return next week for an exposition of Jesus' answer next Lord's Day. But I encourage you to read ahead and pray ahead and meditate all the while. Sovereign Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank You for the divine plan. How wonderful, mysterious, magnificent, adventurous, beautiful, awesome, and terrible it all was and is. Thank You for the most, or one of the most important conversations ever held on this planet in all of history. And how that conversation has changed the world and still has and still will change the world. And we pray that by the power of your word and your spirit, that you will bless our efforts to give this message to all the world. So that those of darkened humanity may come to the light and come to the truth and be born again from above and genuinely enter the one and only true kingdom of God. In Jesus' holy name, bless our efforts, O sovereign God. And may our efforts truly be for you and for your Son in the power of your Spirit, for your Son's kingdom. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.